And then when this person comes and says, let me bury my father. Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead. Follow me. And then the second picture of the storm on the sea. The whole thing seems to be that Jesus doesn't seem to be that wrapped up in the things that are causing us great turmoil. What he says about the, the father seems to be the same thing, that he's sleeping while this water is coming into the boat. Um, don't try to find the answer. Don't, don't make Scripture about yourself before it's about God. Allow yourself to be uncomfortable and say, Lord Jesus, you care so much about me and I know that, but why am I feeling this then? Why am I dealing with this in my life and you seem to be sleeping? What is it that he's doing? The hero dies. You know that that is where this is going. We've got the table in front of the cross now, and each week St. Timothy's puts up a new symbol of the Lenten season. This week is ashes, and the imposition of ashes on Ash Wednesday, the beginning of the season of Lent. You know that the hero dies. The person that you care most about in the story is going to die at the end of it. Well, it's not quite the end, but it's too much to make it personal, to consider the person who means the most to you in this life and who you depend on to give meaning to your life dies and leaves you. Jesus is difficult to grasp. How are we to make sense of him? Even just a simple reading like this morning should leave us with questions. He has consumed the imagination of centuries. Countless lives have been devoted to following him. Many of you tell me that your life is devoted to following him. Can he be known? Claudia reminded us that we know him by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Son of God, the Son of Man, what on earth could that mean? For most, it becomes, or for many, just a marker of divinity. He's God. But that doesn't answer the questions any easier. In the accounts written in Christian Scripture of him, his life, we keep coming against this identity question. He's baptized early in one of the stories, in multiple stories. And this baptism is a humility. He subjects himself to an earthly human baptism. Somebody else, John, baptizes him. But along with this humility, there is this voice from heaven, remember? This is my son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Is that over all of history or just that moment? How do you read that scripture? This is my son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Is that just happening in that moment? Or somehow is that voice over all of history? I hope and feel that it's over all of history and it becomes my prayer that I would know that He is the Son of God and that I would listen to Him. And I long that others would do the same. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust Him. How I've proved Him o'er and o'er. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus. Oh, for grace to trust Him more. It's the longing of my life. In Matthew 4, he's tempted. There's other accounts in the Gospels of this same temptation. 
some longer than others. He's led into the desert by the Holy Spirit, we're told, which is interesting. Led by the Holy Spirit, God leads him into this place of desolation and temptation. And there he is then somehow alone with evil, with Satan. Turn these stones into bread. Why is that a bad thing to do? Any earthly leader would have taken that opportunity. And you still, in many ways, are more interested in following people who can do things like turn stones into bread. It's impressive. It's interesting also that Jesus, later in his life, would feed the 5,000 with just a small amount of food. But here he denies this temptation. Jump from a height. Do something spectacular. And if we could do something spectacular here, maybe there would be more people paying attention. So if I could do something spectacular, you would probably want me to because it would be bring more significance to maybe this gathering and somehow then to your part of it. Jump from a height. But Jesus denies this temptation. Look at all the kingdoms. They can be yours, says evil, says the devil. If you just bow to me. You can have all the kingdoms of this world. And religious leaders and political leaders and celebrities and sports figures have the kingdoms of this world and we think that they have more than us. Thank you, Lawrence. That's good timing. We learn from each other. Any human lord or king would have chosen these things. And many times you would want even your religious leaders to choose these things. Jesus somehow alone with the devil, though God is present. And then a mirror scene in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus now is somehow alone with God in Himself. I've pictured at times like a a mirror to the temptation in the desert. It's the same story, just the bookend. If possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not my will, but yours. But what you will. In Mark 10 and other places, Jesus talks about being a servant. How is the Son of God a servant? Shouldn't we be the ones serving Him? He reminds us that to lead is to serve. And we still, many parts of the church and various people get this right. But we're still more interested in the leaders who are served. He tells the story of a wedding party and he says, when you go to a wedding party, if you're invited, don't take the seats of honor. Take the lowest place, even if the, the, the better seats are open. He serves his disciple at this last supper. Which is an affront to the identity of king or lord or messiah. Such a person wouldn't serve. Such a person certainly, most certainly, would not wash the the feet of his followers. That's for the lesser thans. In John 8.50, we're told that he does not seek his own glory. What I want you to do this morning 
And I'm hoping and praying that you'll be able to do this through the six weeks towards Good Friday and Easter. Is that you will carry in your mind and your heart a prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, I want to know you. They said dreadful things about him, you know. They said he's crazy. He's beside himself. You know what beside himself means, right? He's out of his head. He's like, he looks like he's here, but he's over here. He's so nuts. Or later in the same chapter, Mark 3 says he has Beelzebub. The, the idea there is this is an identity of like a demon, evil. He must have evil in him. That's what they said about him. Must be possessed of an evil spirit. And then they took other shots at him. He's gluttonous. A wine-bibber. He's disqualified from leading anything because he's immoral. He's a friend of publicans. That's the, the word kind of means in its translation, lowlifes, good-for-nothings, people who are failures. And worse, people who are sinners. <laughs> it's funny now to think that people were accusing him of being a friend of sinners. The very accusation makes the accuser a bigger sinner right away. John 7, he was accused of being a deceiver of people. You need to be careful. Don't follow this guy because he's going to lead you astray. That's what they said about him. In Matthew chapter 9 and 26 and other places in the Gospel, this huge accusation is leveled against him. It would lead ultimately to his death. They said he blasphemes God. That he, his words, and his life are a curse to God. And you can't curse God, and so he has to die. And in the end, he is killed between two thieves. He's lifted up from this earth. And there's two words. I'll put them on a separate slide because they should be in your mind separately. This is his humiliation and his exaltation. It's both. And that's where the mystery of our faith finds deep meaning. What does it mean? You should be asking this. What do you want out of this faith? What do you want in this life? Like a more successful life? That's okay. But do you want to know Him? Most of the time, and this is not, I guess it's kind of an accusation, but most of the time, what we hear from one another, most Christians, is not necessarily that the longing of our hearts is to know Him more. It's some other outcome. And it's the thing we present to the world. You can't present knowing Christ really as an impressive thing, right? I mean, humility, self-sacrifice, thankfully in our world, these are in many ways valued. But what you present to the world is your success. You've made it. Or not. Or you feel terrible because people around you have done better than you. It's a question we have to have before us. And I say it, and I hope it tweaks you. I hope it pokes 
Do you want to know Him more? What if knowing Him more might cost you some success? Well, now I don't really want to know Him more. I know Him enough. He is exalted. He's lifted up. And it's such a twisted um, word because His exaltation is on a cross, right? He is lifted up from this earth and in being lifted up in such a way, He is humiliated. He is brought down. Peter tells us, this is astounding truth. To, you have to pray this. this Claudius, you have to pray Scripture. Tells us that His crucifixion, His sacrifice, was foreordained before creation. How, is, how does that happen? Creation and redemption together. In Romans 8, this should be painful for us to hear. God did not spare Him. but delivered Him up. In Mark 9, drawing from the Old Testament, it is written that He will suffer many things. And I like the language in this translation. I think it's ESV. It is written that He will suffer many things and be set at naught. At nothing. He emptied Himself, Philippians 2, of identity and status. He humbled Himself even unto death. Galatians 2, He gave Himself up. That makes me feel a little bit better than simply God gave Him up. That this was God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit together doing this. So if you were to tell a friend or answer the question yourself, what is God like? What would you say? Now the list I'm about to show you should have question marks at the end of each. What is God like? Now, I'm going to tell you, you can only answer that question from the Bible. So right away, people would be like, well, I don't care what you say because you just believe in Christian Scripture and you're making it kind of the trump card over everything else. But that's what we're going to do this morning. You can only answer the question, what is God like from, from actual passages in the Bible? So what can you get? He's a God of peace, right? But somebody from the Bible could make the case that he's a God of war. Same book. He's a compassionate God. Nope, he's a vindictive God. He's an egalitarian God. People are equal before him. Nope, he's an ethnocentric God. He cares more about particular cultures or gender. Some of you have had this question answered for you by other people. And you've seen each one chosen. He's a God who demands blood sacrifice. You could get Scripture for that, right? Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Seems like God demands blood sacrifice. Or, He's a God who abolishes blood sacrifice. What your choice is about what God is like probably has more to do with you than with the Scripture. Maybe with your upbringing. Maybe with a reaction to your upbringing. It's all there. But the question before us is what if God is like Jesus? That's our series. Trying to make sense of Him. 
Have you heard any of the accusations culturally? I mean, it's getting almost old now that, that the world around us is anti-Christian. I've always wondered why Christians care so much about that. Because if we believe in a God who is all-powerful and whose plan can't be thwarted, why do we get upset at opposition? <laughs> we need to stamp out that. No, why? I believe God is able. He doesn't need um, your defense, I don't think. But sometimes I hear these accusations, and they can make sense that the world is anti-Christian. Some of you have heard of this comedian and political commentator named Bill Maher. Bill Maher, thanks again, Lawrence. Bill Maher is famously anti-religious. He made a movie called Religious, where he just makes fun of religion in general, Christianity in particular. He has pretty strong views. He says that he hates religion and that religious people are dumb and that they believe insane and crazy things. Sometime back, this is a number of years ago, his show, I always have politically incorrect, it's called Real Time now with Bill Maher on HBO. I watch it. And sometime back, this would have been a number of years ago, um, probably during another time in terms of politics and international politics in the United States, uh, he, one of his commentaries at the end of his show was about Christian faith and in some ways about Jesus. His lengthy commentary, some would say, and actually I heard it at the time, was an attack on Christians, an attack on Christianity. I could agree with the first part. It was in some ways an attack on Christians. But if you actually listen to it, and I'll read it for you here, and I'll take out the offensive words because there are some. Um... It's, it's not an attack on Jesus at all. It was called, or the title would have been, You Don't Get to Call Yourself a Christian. And at the time, I guess there was a debate in the United States about torture of political enemies, military, whatever. And this is what he said. If you're a Christian that supports killing your enemy and supports torture, you have to come up with a new name for yourself. Capping thy enemy is not exactly what Jesus would do. For almost 2,000 years, Christians have been lawyering the Bible to try to figure out how love thy neighbor could actually mean hate thy neighbor. Martin Luther King gets to call himself a Christian because he actually practiced loving his enemies. And Gandhi, well, you can see there, that was a joke that he's got. But if you're endorsing revenge, torture, or war... You cannot say that you're the follower of the guy who said, love your enemy and do good to those who hate you. You could go with his exegesis here, his interpretation of Scripture, but his point stands at least. You're supposed to look at the the figure of Christ on the cross and think, "This this is this comedian doing this. How could a man suffer like that and forgive? Is this anti-Christian or anti-Jesus? I don't hear that. And then he says, I'm not a Christian, just like most Christians. If you ignore every single thing that Jesus commanded you to do, you're not a Christian, you're just auditing. You're not Christ followers, you're just fans. Why do I read this to you? 
This is a man who is decidedly and proudly non-Christian trying to make sense of Jesus Christ and calling for a high regard for him. People are still drawn to Jesus. How to make sense of him. And maybe the way to convince, I mean, it's all Holy Spirit, but to convince people like Bill Maher that there is, he's worth following is to consider how we follow him rather than what's wrong with other people. The threads for us in the next five weeks as we enter, these, these four things will be layered in the sermons present. Things we can know about Jesus. Firstly, He took the place as judge. It's important to note this. He is the Savior of the world, but He is also its judge. And if He were not the judge, He would not be the Savior. My judgment of myself and the world is too often self-centered or distorted, and it becomes a burden. And if I think that my Christian duty is to judge everything, of course, Jesus Christ said, do not judge. Discernment is different. But judgment actually becomes a burden for me if I think I have to figure out what's wrong with everybody else. That Jesus took the place as judge if we know Him and His true identity, His love for the world. That Jesus took the place of judge is goodness and a gift. Would you rather have anybody else be the judge? If you let other Christians be your judge, not saying you shouldn't listen to them, that's discernment. The community discerns together. But if you let other Christians be your judge, you will be disappointed. And if you think that your job is to judge others, then you will be dangerous. But what if he is the judge over all history? What a tremendous blessing if he is the judge. He took the place as judge. And secondly, he took the place of sinners. He is the transgressor. He is the enemy against God. This is a mystery in our faith that He became sin. I always think of it in my life when I think about the terrible sin that I can see in my own life and around me. And the reality or the presence, however you'd call it, it's different than the reality of goodness and the reality of evil are different. Evil is always a simple distortion of good. It can't exist kind of in its own entity. But when I know about the, that kind of reality of evil in the world, I think, what are we to do about sin? And if you're looking to what Jesus did about sin, He took sin on Himself, into Himself, and He became sin. Martin Luther, in his commentary on Galatians, said, our sin must become Christ's sin or we will perish. In Him come together the highest and greatest and only sin, and the highest and greatest and only righteousness. And somehow on the cross, those things come together. So he is judge. He took the place of sinners. Thirdly, he suffered and was crucified and died. The lie and distortion of a gospel that is no gospel that says Christians can be free from suffering is put to death, or should be, by the reminder that our very Lord suffered. 
and invited us to follow him. And if you're listening to or buying or selling a gospel that doesn't include that, it's a false gospel. If you follow Jesus Christ, you will suffer. He, to the end, suffered and was crucified and died. So much of the story finds its definition in the cross. If you look to the cross, would you see justice? Would you see love? Would you see sin? Did ever such love and sorrow meet or thorns compose so rich a crown? And finally, He has done all of this. Become judge and sinner and suffered and been crucified and has died. He has done all of this before God. In the presence of God the Father. Unto God. I don't mean before in time. I mean He's done this in God's presence. This is a revelation in the world. An offering. He has offered Himself. And in doing so, He has offered us us up to God. And His humiliation is our exaltation unto God. He brings us in this humiliation, exalts us before God. So we'll look at what these things mean. And we end with what Richard read to us, the second part. You remember that scene with the storm? And they got into the boat, and the wind came up, and the boat was being swamped by the waves, and he was asleep. He was asleep. You're praying, dear God, I want to know your presence because right now I'm feeling tossed around. This verse, this passage, is a comfort to you in many ways because he calms the storm. But you've got to get through the first part where it's like, why isn't he freaking out? Because I'm terribly freaking out. And he rebukes, well, he kind of rebukes the disciples. First, you of little faith. And then he rebukes the storm and it becomes calm and they marvel. And the word is basically that they are afraid. And they ask the question that we'll be asking over the next five weeks. So think, they're there in that boat. It's calm now. They should be like, all right, things are good. And in some ways, they must feel that. But now they're afraid not of the storm, but of him. Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey Him. Do you want to know Him more? Because this is a time to do that in the next number of weeks so that by the time we get to Good Friday and you enter into that service where we mark the death of our Lord, that you've carried what you've done through these five weeks in this prayer. I want to know you, Lord Jesus. And if you do, in many ways, that Good Friday service can be overwhelming. Humble yourself before Jesus Christ because He is unlike all other... Well, He's unlike all earthly lords and kings. So I'm going to pray. And after I pray, we're going to take communion, but we're going to take communion in quiet. And I'm going to ask 
the Holy Spirit that there would be a prayer in this place. You might repeat it in your heart as you take communion. This is the bread, His body broken for us, given for the life of this world. The cup, His blood poured out for the forgiveness of sin. You see how this lines up with being the judge, becoming sinner, being crucified, and doing this before God. And we take it and receive it. And as we take it, we pray, Lord Jesus Christ, I want to know You more. So let me pray and you in your mind, heart, can pray these words or similar with me. Dear Jesus, would You calm the chaos of my heart and life? I'm so focused on the storm that I fail to see You. And I wonder, why aren't You fixing things for me? Dear Jesus, I want to know You. I want to know something better than the calming of the storm. I want to know You in my life in my relationships, in the tasks before me, in my role, whether it's son or daughter, parent, spouse, employee, in all of these things, I want to know You. Reveal Your presence. Reveal Your love. Reveal Your call on my life to proclaim Your love. Forgive me for forgetting You. Dear Jesus, bless us with Your presence in this next five weeks as we gather. Forgive us so often for thinking that we ought to evaluate church on how it made us feel good today. If we come here each week with the desire to know You more, You will bless us. But much about it might not be easy. Come Holy Spirit. And now as we turn to communion, we ask Your presence in our prayer that You would bless as we receive in your name we pray. Amen. And we always say you're welcome to receive if you know Jesus Christ or if you would like to. Ushers can come forward. Oh, we're going to do